0: everything classic
1: from the heart of Tennessee
2: mule town radio 103.7 FM and 1340 a.m. sometimes we need a little extra help whether you're recovering from an illness or surgery Murray Regional Home Services offers care ranging from nursing services to physical therapy in the comfort of your home our highly qualified and caring staff provides individualized care for patients in an eight county region to learn more about Murray Regional Home Services visit murrayregional.com or call 931-490-4600. That's 490-4600.
3: Hello, I'm Barbara Lincoln with Holland's Pharmacy.
5: Yes. <sighs> Good morning. It's time for this week's episode of History's Hook, sponsored by ServePro. with your host, Tom Price. Take it away, Tom.
6: Good morning and welcome to History's Hook, where I guarantee that we'll get you hooked on history. I'm your host, Tom Price. Each week on History's Hook, we'll be bringing you interesting and informative stories from the past in an effort to connect the history in our own backyard to the big events that compose national and world history. We'll explore a new topic every week and bring in experts and eyewitnesses to the events and places we'll be talking about. This is not your high school history class. We're going to make history fun and compelling. We're going to get you hooked. Today, we'll begin a short, non-consecutive series on Vietnam, featuring the personal reminiscences and experiences experiences of some of its veterans. The Vietnam War was a long, costly, and divisive conflict that pitted the communist government of North Vietnam, backed by its communist allies, against South Vietnam and its principal ally, the United States. The conflict was intensified by the ongoing Cold War between the United States and the Soviet Union. More than 3 million people, including over 58,000 Americans, were killed in the Vietnam War, and more than half of the dead were Vietnamese civilians. Opposition to the war in the United States bitterly divided Americans. Communist forces ended the war by seizing control of South Vietnam in 1975, and the country was unified as the Socialist Republic of Vietnam the following year. The causes and necessity of the Vietnam War are still hotly debated today. Our guest in the studio is Dr. William Andrews, a retired professor of history at Columbia State Community College and a veteran of the Vietnam War. Dr. Andrews, thank you for joining us today and for your willingness to talk about your
7: experiences. Oh, you're more than welcome.
6: We're also joined in the studio today by my co-host, Dr. Barry Goodcombe. Good morning, Barry.
7: Good morning, everybody.
6: Dr. Andrews, before we get into your experiences in Vietnam, as a retired history professor, I want to tap into your expertise a bit. Uh, Vietnam is one of the most controversial of America's wars. As briefly as we can, remind our listeners what brought the United States into the war in a small country half a world away.
7: Really, it went back to uh, the 1940s, right after World War II, <clears throat> when Japanese forces were defeated, and the, uh, you know, and the, the allies began to step in and take over. France had occupied and colonized uh, uh, Vietnam way back in the 1880s. And what created a lot of resentment was that um, the allies allowed France to come back in, in 1946. And this began a civil war in which the Viet Minh, which were both North Vietnamese and South Vietnamese because the country was not yet divided, um, fought against the French. And we basically assisted the French. I think we paid for something like 80% of all the French cost uh, in that war. And uh, but it didn't look good. Increasingly, we began to be aware of the fact that nationalism was the strongest force that basically motivated the Vietnamese who fought the French. And finally, in 1954, and this was this was uh, eight years after the war began. It began in 1946, but in 1954, there was this huge battle of Dien Bien Phu, and the French were so frustrated by guerrilla activity they wanted to suck the uh you know the uh the vietnam forces into an area where they could bombard them by by aircraft and by artillery but it the, the tables was turned and the vietnamese came in in enormous numbers and basically uh basically surrounded the french forced the french to surrender some of the french surrendered in 1954 there were the geneva accords in which france agreed to get out uh, but there was going to be a temporary division of the country, uh, um, and by that was in 1954 by the Geneva Accords. And basically, the agreement was that after two years, the, there would be elections for reunification. However, two years later, it looked like the Viet men or the North Vietnamese communists uh, by that time in the now divided country were so popular that we were afraid And even though France had agreed and other signatories had agreed to reunification after democratic elections, the South Vietnamese Vietnamese regime that we helped to establish basically balked at the idea and we supported them. So in a sense, uh, we basically guaranteed that there would be a a war. And uh, so the country was now divided almost permanently. And of course, uh, by the early 60s, the Viet, North Vietnamese began to assist the South Vietnamese Viet Cong communists in, uh, in resisting the South Vietnamese regime. And eventually, by 1964 65, Americans began to come in in greater numbers uh, to assist the South Vietnamese. There was this Tonkin Bay Resolution, but that was our rationale for, for entering the war. And then the next year, 1965, Huge numbers of Americans begin to come in. So the
6: thinking, the American thinking at this time, Gulf of Tonkin uh, disaster aside, they see communism spreading in Southeast Asia and sort of the prevailing thought is this idea of the domino effect. If Vietnam falls, so too will the next country and so it will go. That's exactly right. They see this as a line in the sand opportunity by backing a democratic government in South Vietnam. Uh, they're they're preventing that from happening but it, it appears that the writing is clearly on the wall that the communist government actually has more support in Vietnam and so they uh, they hold off elections and things and sort also of go awry.
7: support from the Chinese Communists and also uh, the Soviet Union So they had they had resources to back them up and they hit the population. yeah I think that's that's the big difference in what happened in Vietnam as opposed to Korea in the Korean conflict. The communist army in North Korea crossed the 38th parallel and invaded South Korea. The, the war in, in South Vietnam actually began as an internal rebellion in South Vietnam against an unpopular government. Right. Exactly. And, and also, Barry, what's interesting is that we tried to make the, uh, the war in Vietnam appear like the Korean War whereas, yes, the North Koreans invaded the South Koreans across the 17th parallel uh, in 1950. But in Vietnam, you have these two separate governments. We were saying, hey, the North Vietnamese are invading the South Vietnamese. It's one sovereign government invading another sovereign government. And, of course, that whole issue could be called into dispute because of that breaking the agreement at Geneva where we were supposed to have elections for national reunification. But that's kind of how we framed the issue that this was an invasion. The reality was that most of the fighting uh, at this time was going on between North, between North Vietnamese, I mean, am sorry, between uh, Vietnamese communists, the Viet Cong, and the South Vietnamese government, or the ARVN, the Army of the Republic of Vietnam. It was overwhelmingly an internal um, Uh, war. And of course, there was assistance by North Vietnam monetarily. And little by little, more and more North Vietnamese were slipping into South Vietnam. But this was not like Korea, where, you know, the North Koreans crossed a parallel and dramatically changed the the character of the war.
6: So by the time we're heading into the mid-1960s, the United States is committing more and more resources and troops uh, 1967 is the year that you go in right what do you, what are you doing at that point in time
7: uh, i was at basic training in 1967 when i first went in and i i didn't know this i didn't expect it at the time but i was the best shot in my company on the rifle ranch using the m14 so what really frightened me was that in 19 in in um i guess it was in november of 1967 i was sent to Uh, advanced infantry training at Fort Polk, Louisiana. My basic was in Fort Campbell, but I was assigned to be a sniper. And I had real concerns about the war. I was, you know, I was opposed to the war at that time, unlike many soldiers and, uh, you know, on moral grounds, but also on what I call practical grounds. So I did not want to be a sniper. I didn't want to kill anybody. And by sheer force of luck, I was in line, uh, to be processed at Fort Polk and a, uh, uh, an encephalitis uh, outbreak occurred where several soldiers died uh, at Fort Polk from this disease and, uh, and the barracks could not be filled. So a, uh, an officer came by and asked, is there anybody in here who knows how to type? And of course I raised my hand because I'd been in college for three years and uh, before being drafted. And uh, so I went into administration, so it was pure luck that I wasn't a sniper. <laughs>
6: so prior to your induction into the Army, you were a college student.
7: Yeah, I was a college student for three years. I got drafted in my third year of school at St. Louis University, and I was in good standing. I was on the, the dean's list, and I was making good grades, but I was getting bored with school. you know. And so when the draft, when I was drafted, my draft uh, board was in Nashville, Tennessee. I was going to school in St. Louis, Missouri. Uh, they didn't realize I was in school, so that's why I was drafted. But I didn't fight the draft because, you know, my brother had been drafted the year before. My parents were both officers in World War II, and they, uh, I didn't want to disappoint them. I didn't want them to think I was cowardly. The irony is that when I got out, my dad asked me, why didn't you take a college deferment? I said, would you have been okay with that? He said, of course. <laughs> and, uh, but the other reason was I was bored with school. I was ready for a change.
6: So you're, you're drafted. You're inducted. Uh, how long... So that's 1967 when you go in. Right. And, and so, as you said, you went into sort of the administrative arm yeah, of the Yeah, I went into the
7: administrative branch, and I was my first duty assignment was in Washington, D.C., or just outside of Washington, D.C., at Fort Belvoir. And I was in administration there at Fort Belvoir. At night, I took night classes at uh, Georgetown University. Uh, and because these classes were only graduate classes... At night, I was taking graduate school, uh, graduate level classes in history and political science where I was really basically just a junior. Technically, I had finished my junior year before being drafted. And because of my anti-war feelings, I volunteered when I was in Washington to work at the Washington DC headquarters of, a, of a Senator Eugene McCarthy from Minnesota, who was anti-war. And then when Bobby Kennedy uh, threw in his hat uh, for the election in 1968, uh, I went over and—because I knew he was going to win. I didn't think McCarthy had much of a chance. I went over and started working for Bobby Kennedy, and I worked for him until he was assassinated in uh, June of 1968.
6: So that's really interesting. So— as most people know anti-war protests occurred in the United States really centered in the college campuses so you're ensconced in that side of the war effort the anti-war effort at the same time you're in the military so you're you're sort of traveling both of those paths simultaneously
7: yeah it was kind of interesting they kind of overlapped and intersected because a lot of the friends I had at Georgetown University were protesting on weekends and I would join them in some of these protests
6: interesting so uh Describe for us uh, your path in the Army in terms of your training that led you eventually to Vietnam.
7: Did you know you were going to Vietnam? No, I didn't until uh, my brother got his draft notice. Uh, for v- Not draft notice, but before he got his duty assignment to Vietnam. But he was in a combat uh, MOS or military occupational specialty. So we had this emergency family meeting. I flew down from Washington to, to Nashville. We all met. And uh, we kind of agreed that since John had a combat MOS, he would be in more danger. Plus, he'd be in Vietnam for an entire year since he was in for three years. And uh, so it was kind of agreed. And I, I proposed it, and my parents thought it was a good idea that I volunteer to, uh, to, to go. Problem is, my brother's assignment came down a couple of weeks before we had that meeting. So I had, to get, I had to get these senators, who I knew personally at the time, El um, Gore Sr., uh, William Fulbright, and uh, Claiborne Pell. I got to know them because I often attended uh, Senate Foreign Relations Committee hearings, and, and, and Fulbright was the uh, chair. Uh, I got to know them personally, and I sent them letters saying, begging them to, to flag my brother's orders for Vietnam so I could get that before him, so then I could invoke that, that policy. That only one brother at a time could be in a combat zone, that's so that right. you that's would so go and your brother it would stay out home. That
6: well. Wow! Well, we need to take a break here. We'll be right back in about three minutes on History's Hook.
5: Don't go away. History's Hook, sponsored by Serve Pro, will be right back right after this brief commercial break. At Stat Wellness Primary Healthcare, we know in today's busy world, people expect quality products and services, plus convenience, even when it comes to healthcare. Don't wait to see your provider, wait somewhere else for lab work, and then wait somewhere else again for prescriptions. We can take care of it all in one stop. Come to STAT Wellness in Columbia, 1225 Hampshire Pike, and my team and I will take good care of you. Get on the road to wellness STAT. Call now, 931-982-6333, 982-6333.
8: Not everyone that goes to jail deserves to be there, but they all want out. If your loved one ends up in jail, Call Billy Hood at ABC Bonding to get out as fast as possible. ABC Bonding knows how the system works, and they know their customers are in dire need of help. That's why they're open 24 hours a day, seven days a week to get you out. ABC Bonding in Columbia can be reached at 490-9799. That's 490-9799.
9: Jones & Lang Sporting Goods is a full-service sporting goods store that supplies everything you, team, or your entire league need for sports. Sports. Call 388-8060 or go to jonesandlang.com. Apparel, equipment, fan gear from postseason prep to customized trophies at season to end. They've been in business more than 50 years because they give you the best products, the best service, and the best prices possible. Jones and Lang Sporting Goods, located in Neely's Mill right here in Columbus. Call 388-8060 or go to jonesandlang.com.
5: If you're looking for quality, affordable jewelry, you must visit Tillis Jewelry. 30 years designing custom jewelry, restoring vintage jewelry, repairing jewelry and watches, and they're the perfect place for bridal pieces and engagement rings. They can help you find exactly what you're looking for or help you design the jewelry of your dreams. Just a short drive to Lewisburg on the square to visit Tillis Jewelry, or browse Tillis Jewelry's collections on Facebook or Instagram.
2: Property care doesn't have to be backbreaking and time-consuming work for you. Let the specialists at Storm and Norman's Lawn and Landscaping take care of it. You just enjoy. New or existing homes and businesses, basic lawn maintenance, complete property makeovers, new landscaping installs, and anything in between. Grading, gravel driveways, culverts, sod, drainage, beds, whatever you need. Find Storm and Norman's Lawn and Landscaping on Facebook, then give them a call. Storm and Norman's Lawn and Landscaping.
5: History's Hook, sponsored by SurfPro. With your host, Tom Price is back. Take it away, Tom.
6: Welcome back to History's Hook. Today we're talking about the Vietnam War. In our studio, we have our guest, Dr. William Andrews, who is a veteran of that war. Dr. Andrews, according to the New York Times, by the time you entered the army in 1967, there were already some 490,000 American troops in South Vietnam. Uh, what year did you arrive in country?
7: I arrived on uh, January the first, 1969. And what was unusual? I had been—I was transferred from Fort Belvoir to Fort Dix just for the just for the process of of leaving for vietnam so it was snowing at fort dix i flew to alaska to anchorage where we refueled and then our plane uh, landed for a short time in tokyo japan where it was really cold and then my next stop on the same plane was vietnam uh january the first and i just remember the door opening up and a blast of hot air hitting me after you know, the ice cold of New Jersey and Anchorage, Alaska, and Tokyo. But yeah, I I landed um, on January the 1st, 1969.
6: Uh, uh, New Year's day to be remembered for sure. So by 1969, when you arrived in country, uh, military might peaked in Vietnam that year. 549,000 soldiers uh, would would, uh, be in country. As you flew into Vietnam for the first time, did you get a sense of the scale of the military presence of the United States?
7: Oh, yes. There were several planes that were unloading troops uh, along with ours. And I remember looking at the tarmac, and there was a plane that was on fire, probably from the previous day, but it was still burning. And I just thought, ooh, this is real. Uh, this, is a, <laughs> this is not fantasy. This is a, a plane that had been hit by a rocket by the uh, Viet Cong, probably the day before. But uh, yeah, 500,000. We were peaking at that time. And uh, within 20 days of my arrival, President uh, Nixon was sworn in on January the 20th. And shortly after that, he declared what was called the policy of Vietnamization. That had a huge effect on us who were soldiers, because we realized that in 19... 64. Uh, the reason why we used the Tonkin Gulf incident as a rationale for entering was we needed to get American troops there because the South Vietnamese were losing. And here was Nixon declaring, in order to, I think, uh, be popular back home domestically, you know, to wind down the war, he was saying we're going to turn more and more of the responsibility of fighting over to the Vietnamese so American troops can start withdrawing. Now, it would take a long time. The war wasn't going to be over until 1975, and we weren't going to be pulling out massively until 1973. But those of us who were there had the sense, oh, so we brought American troops in to help the Vietnamese because they were losing in 1964, and what makes us think that they're going to win if we pull out? So a lot of us had this sense at the time, Tom, that, that um, the war was going to be lost, um, especially those of us who are pessimistic and who are opposed to the war in the first place. And as John Kerry said, and when he was protesting protesting against the war after he got back from Vietnam, John Kerry said, you know, nobody wanted to be the last soldier to die in a, in a lost cause You For know, sure. in Vietnam.
6: And Vietnam was a different kind of war altogether, uh, I think. You were assigned to the 165th Combat Aviation Group, which was part of the 1st Aviation Brigade. Right. Uh, according to a Veterans' website, the 165th Combat Aviation Group was activated on February 17, 1969 at Long Binh, so it was a relatively new unit by the time you were arriving there, right. uh, to assume the air traffic control mission over the entire length and breadth of South Vietnam. It included all flight following, ground-controlled radar approach facilities, Army airfield and tower operations, and special operations as well. According to a three-month operational report that I was able to get a copy of, with compiled statistics from May through July of 1969, your unit managed 2.5 million recorded operations at 36 air-controlled airfields. The Army flight-following system averaged 5,779 flights per day. Uh, to give some context for that, Hartsfield-Jackson International Airport in Atlanta, which is the most, uh, which is the busiest airport in the United States currently, uh, services about a thousand flights per day. So, in 1969, while you were there, your unit was doing about five times that number on a daily basis, tracking. Uh, flights in in and out of Vietnam. I, I think that speaks to the scope of the flight operations in South Vietnam during your time that you were there.
7: Right, exactly. And of course, in administration, I was an orders clerk because I was responsible for uh, you know, so many of those individuals in the First Aviation Brigade. But yeah, we were spread all over Vietnam. It was pure luck that when I was processed at, at Benoit, which is just outside of next door, adjacent to a Long Ben. That I was assigned to Long Binh, which is probably the most secure uh, uh, American facility in Vietnam. Just pure luck, because I could have been sent to any of those 36 uh, areas, some of which were very were overrun, say, in the uh, in the uh, Tet Offensive of 1968. And we were hit hard in the Tet Offensive of 1969 at Long Bend. So it was pure luck that I was at Long Bend.
6: I was going to say, despite the fact that you you thought you were in a safe zone. Yeah. yeah. In in truth, you, you were not. So just to give us a little bit of geography, Long Bend is about
7: 40 kilometers east of Saigon. Uh, north, north, probably northeast, I'm northeast. guessing. Okay. I, was, I was thinking in terms of miles, maybe 30 miles, but you're okay. right, yeah, about that many kilometers. Uh, real close, and I, I went to Saigon a couple times because our unit, the 165th, had uh, responsibility for an orphanage in Saigon. And the orphanage was run by French and Vietnamese nuns. And these, these kids were, interestingly, they were often the products of american fathers and vietnamese mothers and of course the fam vietnamese mothers would see this as a stigma against the family so a lot of these kids were just turned over to these uh to these catholic nuns uh, most of whom were uh, were vietnamese but quite a few were were french too
6: and so your unit took that we took on care sort of them as a and and we,
7: i went into viet uh, into saigon several times and one of the things that i noticed when i was in Saigon is that, uh, you know, you had to be careful because uh, Viet- the Viet Cong were very active uh, in uh, in Saigon. But one of the things I've noticed that there were quite a few Westerners on the streets doing drugs and just hanging around. And I kept thinking, these look like Americans. And in fact, in retrospect, I'm, I believe most of them were, a lot of them were deserted. So when the war was over and we talked about um, MIA's missing in action. I, I'm still personally convinced that not not a small number of them were actually these just deserters, American deserters who just found themselves in a, in Saigon.
6: You were in-country during the 1969 Tet Offensive, as you said. Describe for our listeners what was Tet and what was your experience.
7: Well, it was a a national holiday for all the Vietnamese, and it was huge. Now 1968 was a big one. The Tet Offensive of 68 was a big one. And that's when, you know, that's when President Johnson made his declaration in in this aftermath that he would not seek re-election in 1968. It was that demoralizing to him. And it was a shock. And and, um, what happened, what allowed the Vietnamese or the Viet Cong to have such access was that People from all over Vietnam were traveling, especially South Vietnam, traveling to their homes of their birth or their visiting family. It was a huge, it's like our Christmas or, you know, I think that's a good example. When you think of the, the travel during Christmas, Americans all over the country traveling everywhere, that's a good analogy. It was like the Tet. So it was in, under the cover of all this travel that the Viet Cong were able to slip into Uh, areas where they could confront uh, American, uh, American forces in these installations. And a lot of them were overrun. We weren't overrun. I was, I was, uh, I was on perimeter guard during the Tet Offensive, and we were hit. And several Viet Cong were able to slip through our wires and get behind us and fire back at us. Uh, But I'd say, uh, I can't remember the number, but there were probably several hundred Viet Cong who were, who were killed before we were driving them off. But it was it was amazing at night to look up and to see these jolly green giants, these helicopters firing their miniguns, and every so often, you know, uh, a a bullet was a tracer bullet. So it was like a complete line, uh, straight down, and you could see all these ribbons, these red ribbons of tracers coming down, uh, with artillery going out and with rockets coming in. It was a pretty, uh, it was a pretty noisy affair, and somewhat scary. You know, we had our m- M16 m rifles. we were on perimeter waiting for uh, the breakthrough. The breakthrough never really came. A few uh, sappers were able to get through the wires. And there was one guy who got through, young guy, because um, I saw him through my binoculars the next morning, who was shooting at us. And uh, he was a terrible shot. And eventually, he just kept shooting, which gave his position away. And a huge Abrams tank just rolled up and just... You know, burned him with a flamethrower. I just thought, if he could have just kept quiet and slipped back, you know, through the Constantino wire at night, he would have saved his life. But he looked like a real young guy, real skinny little kid, uh, with a with an M, with an AK-47 that seemed bigger than he was.
6: We're going to need to take our second break, uh, unfortunately, uh, but we'll be right back on History's Hook.
5: Don't go away. History's Hook sponsored by ServePro, will be right back, right after this brief commercial break.
8: Asgard in Norse mythology means dwelling of the gods that ruled the Vikings. Their presence and exploration was so profound that their three-century reign in parts of Europe is known as the Viking Age. Much like their ancestors, Asgard Brewing Company practices the Viking tradition of using what is locally available. You can taste the attention to detail in Asgard's farm-to-barrel brewing method with locally sourced ingredients. Stop by Asgard Brewing Company on the Duck River in downtown Columbia and channel your inner Viking.
2: Property care doesn't have to be backbreaking and time consuming work for you. Let the specialists at Storm and Norman's Lawn and Landscaping take care of it. You just enjoy. New or existing homes and businesses, basic lawn maintenance, complete property makeovers, new landscaping installs, and anything in between. Grading, gravel driveways, culverts, sod, drainage, beds, whatever you need. Find Storm and Norman's Lawn and Landscaping on Facebook, then give them a call. Storm and Norman's Lawn and Landscaping.
5: History's Hook, sponsored by SurfPro. With your host, Tom Price is back. Take it away, Tom.
6: Welcome back to History's Hook. Today we're talking about the Vietnam War, and we have a guest in the studio today, Dr. Bill Andrews, who is talking about his experiences there. Some quick facts about the Vietnam Wall In Washington, D.C., there are 58,267 names on the wall, Uh, 39,996 were just 22 years old or younger, 8,283 were 19, 33,103 were 18, there were 12 17-year-olds, 5 soldiers who were 16. There are three sets of fathers and sons on the wall, 31 sets of parents lost two of their sons. 997 soldiers were killed on their first day. 1,448 were killed on their last. Eight women, all nurses, are on the wall. 244 soldiers were awarded the Medal of Honor during the war. The names of 153 of them are on the wall. Dr. Andrews, we were talking about Tet Offensive in 1969. Long Bin was one of the two main targets for that offensive. Da Nang was the other. You survived it, and although you were an administrative soldier, uh, you had to pull security uh, during these offensives. You saw your share of combat. Describe for us what happened on May 12th and 13th of 1969.
7: Well, uh, it began, it was Mother's Day, and I remember writing a letter to my mother, um, and I could hear some bombardment in the background. Actually, I wasn't writing a letter. I was taping that's what we did we just we just had audio tapes and we can send them in packages back home so it's much easier than writing but i was taping a a mother's day greeting it was a sunday and i remember rockets i mean uh, the sounds of of bombs and i just reassured my mother that this was just outgoing artillery from nearby bearcat which was our our close uh, artillery base uh, near uh, Long Bend. Uh, but when, when I finished the tape and prepared it to send to her, I walked over to the, to the uh, command center and asked our, our orderly, what's going on? And he says, well, it's the Ho Chi Minh birthday, and it's just that uh, there's some activity going on, but we don't expect much from it. So I went back to, you know, my barracks. It was a Sunday. I wasn't working that day. I was kind of relaxing. But that night, um, we were hit. Uh, that's how I lost my hearing in my left ear. We, uh, we were hit by just dozens and dozens of rockets, heavy. Um, and, and, and yeah, it was, uh, it was another offensive, uh, kind of like the Tet Offensive of 1969. It wasn't quite as bad, but uh, one of my best friends was killed. His, he was in a, an adjacent hooch. And it was probably a different rocket than the one that uh, damaged my ear. But the rocket uh, made a direct hit on his hooch. And he was a good poker-playing friend of mine. He was from Scotland. And he was older than most of us. Uh, he was, I think he was like 27 or 28 years old. Uh, he's buried in Scotland. But he was killed. Uh, it was a direct rocket attack. His bunk was the lower bunk. The upper, upper bunk for his roommate was occupied by a guy who had just seen his wife in Hawaii. He was on his way back from and uh, Recreation, R&R. So if he had arrived a day later, he would have been killed like John. But, uh, but I remember John, uh, I remember we ran into his barracks, uh, his hooch, to, to pull him out. And uh, we were all on bare feet. The rockets came in in, in such a, a fashion, we just grabbed our, our, uh, our weapons and we ran into a, a bunker as the rockets were coming in
0: this was
6: in the night in the middle of the night yeah
7: the middle of the night around midnight i'm guessing and uh but i remember sergeant rushing i got kind of i got kind of claustrophobic in that bunker because we were all in there we were sweating we were in our boxer shorts and we were holding our m16 rifles and we're just shaking you know from all the the rocket and i heard a a sergeant saying someone's been hit some we've had some injuries i need some help so i i was on the outside of the bunker because i I didn't want, it was claustrophobic inside. So I was just sort of waiting close to the entrance so if a rocket came in, I can jump in, but I could also breathe fresh air. And uh, I followed him over to the hooch where John was. And uh, I remember vividly uh, looking at uh, the medics were trying to work on him to revive him. And uh, he had a little refrigerator next to his bed. It was a little minor refrigerator and uh, it was just blown to smithereens, uh, the shrapnel from the rocket. But above that was a picture of the Sacred Heart of Jesus, and I was always impressed by that because you know it's almost like the heart was perforated again, but this time it was perforated by you know by rocket uh, shrapnel. But uh, he died on the way to the hospital. We got him into an ambulance, and my Mormon friend drove him to the hospital. Came back about an hour later and told us all that he had died on the way to the hospital. So it was real tragic. We had a memorial service for him a couple days later, and uh, I was in touch with his sister when he was buried back in Scotland. But that was probably the closest friend. I I had other friends who were killed in Vietnam, but most of them were friends I knew in school who had gone to Vietnam later. But this was the first time I actually knew somebody who was a close poker-playing friend of mine, who always liked the photographs that I posted, I put photographs... Next to my bunk, just family members, and he would always come by. And uh, I can remember a girl that I had been dating. I had her picture up there, and he would always walk into our hooch when we were, he was playing uh, poker, and he, for good luck, he would just sort of put his hand on her picture, you know. Uh, and he he won often. He was he was a very good poker player. I wasn't. His name is John Love. John Love. He John was from uh, Scotland. Sergeant John Love.
6: And he he was trying to uh, speed up the citizenization process to become an American? I'm by... assuming
7: that. I, 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 you know, I think that's just like a lot of, uh, unfortunately a lot of Hispanics today who you see in the U.S. Army who are now being sent back to Mexico because they were illegals when they came. Uh, I think uh, the process was, was that exactly, Tom. I think he was trying to speed up the process of citizenship. He was actually living in uh, Hollywood, California uh when he was uh when he entered military service and when he was uh and when he left for Vietnam but uh yeah I think that was it and uh he wanted to be American citizen he was very of course I loved his accent he had this the Scottish brogue and it was just it stood out uh when we were playing poker you know a lot of people you know, kind of made fun of it I loved it you know kind of Different from the Irish bro that I was familiar with, but he was still he was a fun, you know, fun person. You know, kidded around a lot. Had a great sense of humor. Had great wit, uh, and he was older than the rest of us. He was about twenty-seven or twenty-eight, if I can remember. How long were you in Vietnam? I was in Vietnam for six months. I should have been there for nine months, but as soon as I got to Vietnam, uh, I heard through the grapevine that there was a way to get out of military service three months early if you could be accepted to our university so I don't think I was in Vietnam more than about you know a month before I wrote to Father McGannon who was the dean of students at St. Louis University it's a Jesuit institution and I I told him I wanted to uh, reapply for admission to St. Louis and he immediately and I told him there was a matter of some you know there was a necessity for some speed on this so I could get my early out and yeah I had the papers immediately and uh, so I should have ETS'd out of Vietnam um, on, on September the 20th, 1969, but I ETS'd or got out of military service on, uh, on June the 20th, three months early, so, and went, went right to school. As a matter of fact, classes had already begun. My sister was taking notes for me at St. Louis University in the classes that I had applied for.
6: Well, let's pick this back up in just a moment. Let's spend a few minutes with our sponsors. We'll be right back on History's
5: Hook. Don't go away! History's Hook, sponsored by ServePro, will be right back right after this brief commercial break.
0: Hi, I'm Steve, the Garbage Man. Have you been hauling your own garbage to the convenience center? Are you tired of doing it? Does your work schedule keep you from hauling it off regularly? Is your teenage son not taking it off like he promised when he got his driver's license? Do you have something better to do on Saturday? If any of these questions strike home to you, call the garbage man at 931-540-0919 and your problem will be solved. Looking for convenience? Try Quickmark
8: Convenience Stores, conveniently located all across Murray County, Southern Middle Tennessee and North Alabama. Right now, get 99 cent Icy any size. Hungry for breakfast? Try two ham biscuits for $3. Or how about two grilled chicken sandwiches for just $4? It's Quickmark Convenience Stores, conveniently located all across Southern Middle Tennessee and North Alabama. Quickmark Convenience Stores, proudly serving Shell gasoline
7: staff at spring hill memorial park and funeral home know that today's busy schedules often cause you to put things off that need to be done planning for the inevitable is a special gift from the heart that spares your loved ones the burden of making difficult decisions at the time of your death the experienced and caring staff at spring hill memorial will assist you in making these decisions locally owned and operated spring hill memorial park funeral home and cremation services
5: 931-486-0059 grade.
7: this commercial and spend absolutely any time outside you need columbia farm supply animal supplies
0: decor hand tools clothing hardware and more for whatever you need on the
7: farm in your garden on your front porch your backyard your property line if you need it outside check columbia farm supply first see all their products at more than a then you'll be ready to head out to 170 bear creek pike to give them a visit columbia farm supply
5: History's Hook, sponsored by SurfPro, with your host, Tom Price, is back. Take it away, Tom.
6: Welcome back to History's Hook. Today we're discussing the Vietnam War. Uh, Dr. Andrews, uh, after the rocket attack on May 12th and 13th, you had some damage to your ear, you said, uh, and deafening ringing uh, in your ear. Uh, and I thought it was interesting in some of the writing that you mentioned, you were going to get it looked at, uh, but when you arrived, you saw desperately wounded soldiers there and you were too embarrassed to get it checked out. Uh, explain, explain that.
7: Well, the very next day after the, the ringing was just really loud in my left ear and I just uh, I left work early and went to a medevac hospital. And I was waiting in line at this medevac hospital to be seen by a doctor. And I I just thought maybe there's something they could do about it because it was ringing really loud. And, uh, I mean, it's still ringing. It's been ringing for 50 years now, so I'm kind of used to it now. But as I was waiting in line, uh, I think there were two helicopters that just landed, and they were bringing in these guys on stretchers who were festooned to – you know IVs and uh, you know and plasma and I just thought, my gosh, this is embarrassing. You know the fact that I have this little this little ear problem and these guys are just fighting for their lives. So I just basically went up to the uh, to the orderly at the Medevac hospital and said, uh, never mind. And I just basically walked. It was within walking distance. Uh, so uh, so that's mm-hmm. you know. And on the day that I was about to leave Vietnam, uh, uh, on the ju- 20th of, of June a doctor was processing us to go back to the states and he asked me just I guess it was a perfunctory question he asked me if I had any claim to make against the U.S. government and I said yeah I've got a I got a hear uh, you know an ear problem where I can't hear uh, my left ear and he said well you need to get into a different line because it might take two or three more days to process you if you're making a claim against the government and I basically said, Never mind. And uh, and, and I, I just wanted to get home. Plus my sister was taking notes for me at the in the college class that I was taking. Uh, and uh, so I just got on that, that TWA airline and you know saw the American stewardess, you know, in a mini skirt and blonde hair. I just thought, Oh, I'm going back to our real world, you know, <laughs> I'm away from Vietnam. Uh, interestingly, a few years ago, I was playing poker with uh, some friends of mine, and one is a guy who processes uh, work for the the VA, and he basically said, "You never give up your right to claim uh, a damage to, uh, you know, uh, from a combat zone. You never give that up." So he basically helped process me, where I I do get a little a little like a stipend every month from the Veterans Administration for that. But I I waited. I guess it was forty years before I realized I could do that. <laughs> not a lot, you know, not a lot, but it helps with with pension and with uh, you know social security. Bill, we uh, we hear a lot about in Vietnam. We hear the uh, stories about the the infamous body count, and you had a an experience along those lines in Vietnam that you have shared with me before. I I think I know uh, what you're talking about, Barry. Uh, yeah, it was uh, during the Tet Offensive when uh, uh, there were there were. It was morning. I mean, most of the fighting had been uh, had occurred during the night, where the the you know giant green giants, the helicopter assault helicopters firing on the attacking Viet Cong and uh, and you know soldiers from our bunkers. We were in bunkers firing out. At the attacking Vietnamese and uh, trying to get through the Constantino wire, and uh, we were firing claymores to slow them down. But the next morning was the uh, body count, the proverbial body count. And um, you know, I I walked and I saw all these these guys, and they looked very very young. I'd say, the, you know, most of them looked like they hadn't even begun to shave yet. And uh, but it was kind of it was a little disturbing I was a little nauseous when I saw this and I remember I was kind of leaning over. Is this what you're referring to, Barry? Uh, officer came by and yes. asked me to take his photograph yes. in, in front of the bodies. And I, you know, uh, I just said, no. You know, and uh, and I think the orderly who was with him realized that I had been there and it was a rough night and basically said to the officer, "Never mind, he's had a rough night, you know, uh, somebody else can do it. Somebody else did, they took a picture of him Uh, next to all these bodies but it was kind of like it kind of reminded me of of trophy hunting in some ways and it kind of turned me off Mm. but but if that's what you're referring to or just remember being nauseous at the site but there was that policy of body count and so many civilians were killed and it it was it was not you know unknown Uh, it was you know I think it was recognized pretty broadly that oftentimes Uh, our officers would inflate the number of casualties of bodies, knowingly including civilians, to make it look like we're winning the war. Uh, I I think that was part of the, uh, I think that was part of the game. And and that was demoralizing too, because we all knew we were losing the war by that time. After the Tet Offensive of 68, we knew we were losing. Now we were having soldiers withdrawn. Every month, more and more soldiers were going back to the States. So we were we are that 540,000, I think it was the number at the peak that was diminishing now month by month while I was there. But you know, we knew that boy, the Viet Cong are growing in popularity. It was nationalism. We were like the French, we were tall, blue eyed for the most part. You know, we looked like Frenchmen, we spoke a strange language. Uh, I think a lot of it was nationalism, and uh, and uh, I. I I think most of us who, who were reading, I had just been reading several books on Vietnam. I had read Bernard Fall's book on the divided Vietnam, and uh, oh, there was another book he wrote that I, re- uh, that I read at, while I was in Vietnam. But um, it, it was, you know, we were all discouraged, and we talked about this in our in our barracks uh, when we were playing poker and whatnot. That it looks like it's a lost cause.
6: Dr. Andrews, you've been working for some years now on an autobiography, which you call The Arrowhead Fields, currently unpublished, uh, but you've been kind enough to publish excerpts on, on Facebook and, and a couple of other sources as well. If, if you'd allow me, I'd like to read just a, a little section sure. uh, about your transition back back to the world. Sure. You write, The plane for home was a commercial TWA, and as I boarded, my mouth fell open in a trance-like veneration when I observed the young and exquisitely attractive American stewardess at the door welcoming us aboard. She had long blonde hair with large, rimmed sunglasses pulled over her head, and she wore a bright-colored mini-dress. Even though I made a conscious effort not to stare, I could not take my eyes off her. I thought her the most beautiful creature God had placed on the planet, a gatekeeper to a wonderful new world of beauty, possibility, hope, and safety. I felt somewhat silly in my excitement, like a child about to enter the big top tent for the first visit to, a, to the circus. I, I think that's a wonderful description, and all of your writing is, I, I find it just absolutely incredible. Um, but what a juxtaposition, and going from what had been six months of being scared every day, I would imagine, to this place on an airplane which felt like refuge to you, uh, especially the words that you use, beauty, possibility, hope, and safety— what came next for you when you left the Army?
7: Well, I knew that that I would be back at St. Louis University within the day. As a matter of fact, uh, my plane, after I ets out of Vietnam at, at uh, I guess it was Oakland Air Base in, uh, in, in California. And fortunately, there were not protesters. Oftentimes, there were protesters protesting the war who would, you know, call us baby killers or whatever there there wasn't any of that i had i experienced that in washington dc when i was called an sob one time and then realized on the street and i realized oh it's because i'm in a uniform but i didn't experience that but i remember on the flight back i just had this warm feeling like i've been at st louis university for three years and i loved it i love my professors i love the students and i'd be back soon so there's that that sense of warmth and uh and, but I remember arriving at the airport and taking a a taxi to where my apartment was going to be. My parents had had uh, gotten a, an apartment for me just adjacent to St. Louis University, and my my uh, my taxi dropped me off. And there was a note on the door. This was something like uh, six o'clock in the evening. That uh, that. Uh, uh, they were at church. They were at a church service at the college church, St. Francis Xavier Church. So I thought, oh, I left my bags with a security guard, and I walked to the church, and I walked in, and it was dark, and there was a storm going on, so there was lightning all around. But I remember walking in, and, uh, and I could see my parents in the front row, and uh, I forget exactly what it was, but I could see light coming, lightning coming through the windows, the stained glass windows, but I got to the front row, and I forget what it was now, but almost immediately as I sat down, the choir broke into hallelujah. <laughs> <laughs> and that's kind of how I felt, like wow. But it was, it was so good to get back, and I, was, I had taken these courses at Georgetown University, so I was only a couple, I think nine hours away from my bachelor's degree. So I finished my bac- bachelor's degree that summer of 1969 and began my uh, graduate program in history. Uh, I love political science. My bachelor's degree was in political science, but I think uh, just two years out of the, uh, you know, out of school, made me realize how much I loved history, and I was reading history all the time. So I started a graduate program, and I did it within a year. I got my master's degree in a year, and uh, then I started thinking about the doctorate.
6: We're we're almost out of time, um, but I wanted to end with one one last question. In an article you wrote for the Daily Herald, you called war a malignancy in the dna of our species 50 years has passed since vietnam how do you feel about it today
7: oh i think i think i was right i think it is uh in the dna of our species i think people often love war we see it as entertainment if we're not involved you know viscerally of course some people like it viscerally i never could understand the kind of person who would volunteer for a second or a third tour in vietnam but there were those who did I never could understand that mentality, but I do know there are people who look at war like a football game and it's entertainment for them uh, because they have no real, they have nothing invested in that war. And, uh, but I think it is um, a, a part of the species, this love of war. And of course, what motivates people too is, you know, acquiring territory and, uh, you know, patriotism. And, you know, uh, I, I think it's, it's a curse. And uh, it's kind of like prejudice. I have, I have the same feeling that prejudice is also embedded in the DNA of our species. I see it everywhere. I mean, I've traveled over five continents, and I see prejudice everywhere. One group just, you know, looks down on another, I guess, to make themselves feel better about themselves. So uh, I, see, I see the love of war, and I see prejudice as uh, stamped in our DNA and, and something that I, I wish someday we could overcome.
6: Dr. Andrews, thank you for sharing your important story with us. Uh, we appreciate it so much. Thank you for your service to our country.
7: Thank you, Tom, and thank you, Barry. It was, a, it was fun for me, too.
6: We thank our sponsor, ServPro of Marine Giles County, as always. Barry Gidcombe, thank you for your time. We'll be back next week with another edition of History's Hook.
5: For listening to History's Hook with Tom Price, we hope you enjoyed today's show. Be sure to tune in every Friday at 10 a.m. right here on WKRM 103.7 FM for a journey through time. Today's edition of History's Hook was sponsored by Surf Pro of Murray and Giles County. Surf Pro faster to any disaster.
8: Holtz Towing offers complete roadside assistance and has been rescuing drivers in Middle Tennessee for 23 years. They are available 24 hours a day, so in an emergency, just call Holtz Towing right away. If you get a flat, engine trouble, or run out of gas, call Holtz Towing. Mention this ad and save $5. They do minor repairs and pay cash for junk cars. Remember, Holtz Towing, 615-708-7073. That's 615-708-7073. Welcome to
1: Columbia Chrysler Dodge Jeep Ram. Dedicated to exceptional service, the highest integrity, and your complete satisfaction. We're proud to serve all of Middle Tennessee with over 500 new and 125 pre-owned vehicles in stock to choose from. Columbia Chrysler Dodge Jeep Ram offers volume discounts from friendly and knowledgeable sales professionals or expert service from our certified technicians.
0: That's how we became the number one Chrysler Dodge Jeep Ram dealer in the state of Tennessee. You can count on us.
1: Number one claim based on 2015 combined retail and fleet sales for Chrysler Dodge Jeep Ram in the state of Tennessee.
8: at Southern Tray Steakhouse in downtown Columbia. We hand select only the best black Angus beef for our cut by hand steaks. Our chops are French cut and flame kissed. Want something lighter and fair? Try our garden fresh salads or something fresh from the sea. Classic Southern sides, a bounty of appetizer options and pastas and some of the best sandwiches in town. There's something for everybody at Southern Trey Steakhouse on West 7th Street in downtown Columbia.
0: WKOM, your music, your sports, your radio station. WKOM, 101.7 FM.
4: You hit the right spot.